I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. In past episodes, we've discussed the various types of housing, the evolution of housing, and the issues that we face today, particularly affordability. On the other end of that spectrum, there are custom homes. A big difference between custom homes and much of the other housing you see are with custom homes, the homeowner often owns the land themselves and builds one specific home to their taste, as opposed to a builder or developer building a variety of marketable homes to sell to the masses. Custom homes have their own set of issues and are definitely a unique project to take on. This is Spaces Podcast where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius. This is Michelle. Hey everyone. And this is Jason. Hey guys. And gals. <laughs> and People. You, and Trying to be politically correct. And you're listening <laughs> to Spaces Podcast. Uh, welcome back everybody. Uh, before we jump into it, a um, couple of announcements. We are in the home stretch. We only have a couple more recordings, I think, to go. So w- our finale is coming up soon. And just an early heads up, we're going to put out details a little bit later. But we're looking into setting up sort of a live stream for our finale so you can hang out with us. So if you are interested, please, uh, you can send us your email uh, either on our website you can leave it there or you can send us an email directly to hello at spacespodcast.com and we will get you on the list and get that um, those details and, and how to uh, join us. 
So uh, make sure to do that. Spacespodcast.com. Um, it's pretty blatant. It's on our homepage. So other than that, guys, we are doing custom homes today. So I don't know if either of you have dealt with custom homes. Yes. You have. So many times. What uh, I'm doing the... Because you guys... Cabinets, floors, flooring. all okay. that kind of fun stuff. Okay. Is that... Do you prefer... It's or pain in the ass. Really? Yes. Compared to yeah. development or Massive. production stuff? Yeah, it's a totally different world. I think, um, you know, when you start talking to uh, our guests, they'll probably talk about the difference between custom versus production and just how much more hand holdings involved. I mean, you know that, yeah. right? Think about that from like the remodel side and whatnot. Yeah. But I mean, change after change and people just all up in your work and <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's really, it's a completely different animal. And what I've noticed about the space is everybody thinks they really honestly know everything Yeah. in that space. Yeah. And so it's like, it, it's, um, it's just different. Yeah. I mean, it really is two different worlds. Generally, one side doesn't play well with the other, and the mm-hmm. other side doesn't play well with the other, you know, from production to custom and custom to production. Um, and there's no real reason why it should be that way. Yeah. And I don't think it should stay that way. Yeah. Um, but people are able to get a premium for it because they get to tag the term custom on it. <laughs> yeah. um, and anytime you say custom, all I hear is delays. You know what I mean? Like, hmm. that's what it sounds like to me, but... Yeah, but yeah, lot, lot, a lot of experience with it. Yeah, Michelle, I don't have any professional experience with custom homes, but okay. just admiring them from afar. <laughs> oh, for <laughs> yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, sure. I actually have a couple things to get to in later on in the episode. To your point, Jason. So mm-hmm. uh, we'll have an interesting conversation about that. Um, oh. So we, we have a, I think we have a couple guests. I'm, we're in flux right now, but we have guests coming. You're the on. one that sets this stuff up, buddy. What do you I mean know. you think? <laughs> can't, can't control everything. So. Uh, so before we get to our guests, story time. Jason, I, I can't wait to tell you this. So I will occasionally check our sort of reviews and kind of okay. how we're doing. Oh. And uh, this is gonna go one can, of two ways very quickly. Yeah. So. <laughs> I came. Did they ac- say kick Jason off. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> haven't seen that one yet. So we yeah. yet <laughs> yeah. solid solid point right there. So uh, wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> so I was going through uh, on iTunes and uh, scrolling. We have pretty good ratings, like four point nine. It's like out of five. I'll take that. Yeah. I'm gonna check that out right now. And we had, um, I think we have like thirty eight reviews. So please, please go flood. Uh, iTunes with reviews uh, helps others find the show. Unless you're going to say something negative, then then don't bother. What? No, no, no. Great. Even kidding. if you have constructive I criticism, great. That's a good segue. So I came across this one. It's titled "As a Young Urban Planner." Dot dot dot. One star. Nice. What do they got? I don't think you can get zero. Oh. So he says this po- this podcast rubbed me the wrong way for so many reasons. For one, the podcast on millennials goes into everyone's personal opinion of millennials. Absolutely. As you all mentioned, we're just as complex as dynamic humans as any other generation. However, the assumption that everyone wants a big house with a yard and a family seems grossly linked to older generations' way of status building. We're not traveling the world, so our Instagrams, so we seem cooler. (laughs) 
but maybe because as soon as we leave the U.S., we find a better, easier life to experience in countries with high-speed rail, affordable housing, and culture. On that note, the transportation podcast was just milking <laughs> an Elon Musk idea of underground tunnel linking. Uh, here we go. This podcast is not only centered around the U.S. practices of building and sprawl, it mainly takes from Southern California. Why not look out to the cities that are doing much better job than California or better than the U.S. without even mentioning the more obvious European cities? I'd be happy to suggest Santiago, which we've talked about, uh, Medellin, Buenos Aires, uh, which have all seemed to figure out how to build a network of prioritized metro and bus systems that move millions of people per day without input of a rich, egocentric child's unsustainable suggestions. Maybe you guys should travel more. I love that. Maybe you guys should travel more. <laughs> yeah. uh, they probably, this listener hasn't, hasn't uh, captured the amount of travel that I've done. And you're right. We actually talked at length about Santiago, Chile, yeah. Yeah. Uh, on the heels of, guess what? Me traveling there. Yeah, we didn't uh, we didn't get into it yet, but we scheduled it or put it on our list. So we're gonna get to that. Uh, if you are still listening and interested in hearing that, yeah, hold on a second though. Like I I actually have no problem with with people, you know. But there's a couple there's a couple things that I think is interesting, right? They yeah. say that this is based on our opinion, right? Yeah. Of course it is. <laughs> like I mean, like let's be real, you freaking knucklehead, right? But here's the other thing. You don't think what he's saying, who, I'm assuming it's a he, doesn't sound like a girl to me. <laughs> no, not, not sure, but I think it's a guy. I'm pretty positive. So anyway, so here's my thing. This is also his opinion. Yeah. So what I think is so funny about people these days and the millennial generation, yeah. you're not allowed to have your opinion, yeah. but they're going to insert their own opinion, Yeah. right? Like they have all these experiences and everything else and go to it. Here's the other thing that I would say. Of course it's US centric. Yeah. There's more people trying to come to the US than any other country around. All the ones that we're talking about, they leave there to come here. Yeah. Like let's be real. Yeah. So this, it is the superpower. But it's also US centric because totally we're fine. Americans yeah. of course, that's living in the United like States. Our daily life. But, but, but I have no problem with that. But it's like, instead of just taking shots at stuff, and this is, okay, opinion of yeah. a millennial-centric problem, they take shots and they have their own opinion, but they base it up with zero fact. Yeah. So let's have a constructive conversation about it. Yeah. We'd be open to that. The problem is they sit here and think that they have the, the, the right to just speak their mind without any kind of like consequence behind it yeah. or any solution offered at all. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like, look, bud, I hope you figure it out yeah. and I hope you go to Buenos Aires and enjoy the rest of your life. Chances <laughs> are you're not going to go and leave here to go there. It's yeah. not going to happen. Well, the, the thing, the issue that I took with it is the constructive criticism i guess was that we should travel more right was really the only recommendation yeah the, the, the opinion but at the time ali was here and she travels all the time all the time she's like you. she, she yeah. might travel more than you she made a lot she of she travels for work more than me for sure but i think, but I think internationally i've got ali beat yeah, for probably. sure yeah. i mean i've been to all seven continents but she lived in london like, yeah. you know what I mean, right? Because she yeah. went to the school, whatever that she fancy did. school yeah, was. She did, yeah, she did her so master's. she lived there, too. Yeah, that's true. So, but I also studied abroad, so I lived in I studied Denmark a lot abroad. and Scandinavia. She, and in that particular episode, we were 
talking about housing or or we're talking about millennials and i think you and i were speaking from a california dude i was probably rough on him like let's let's be real <laughs> I, I think I, we were speaking from a california mindset yeah and she's from ohio yeah so she reined us in and sort of talked about talked about you know, horse and buggy know, that they still have back there <laughs> <laughs> what, what uh what the midwest is like so yeah I, that that was kind of interesting. So, no, but that's the thing. I don't who, like. Who, I don't. Have I think the criticism is fine. Yeah. It's more of just the false statement of you Correct. should travel more. Well, fact of the matter is, actually, we travel quite a bit. Yeah. Maybe you know. I don't. Jason doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Jason I have no desire that's to. That's okay, and that's why we have yeah. a diversity of yeah. Well, here, of voices and, and look, on this podcast. And this is an opinion. Yeah, I can afford a vehicle. I can afford to travel. I can afford to have a home here. So I'm not making excuses as to why I have to go wherever else it is. Yeah. I get that everybody else has a different set of circumstances. Cool. Again, that comes down to opinion. You know what I mean? Yeah. And but I but I would welcome like criticism, like constructive criticism yeah. that talks about, hey, have you taken this into account? Have you looked at this? Here's an example of such that works because of these reasons. Yeah. So millennials, listen up. Like that's what you guys need to do because you're missing that boat. Yeah. Like by and large, I've got 350 people that I deal with on a daily basis that, that work with my teams, right? Work for our team. That's a big piece that's missed in that generation. It's here's my problem. Solve it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Come up with a solution for me. You know what I mean? Because guess what? That's what, that's how you make money. Yeah. That's the truth. Yeah. Right. So it's interesting. Yeah. I'll take the one star. We're playing golf that day. It's good to go. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, we actually are ranked five. We've got five stars, not 4.9. Yeah, take that, buddy. It's five <laughs> now? Kidding. Oh, that's cool. Uh, so it is five out of five. Nice. 38 ratings. So we need more, uh, more reviews, sort of get reviews to, to kind of... I'll do a review today. Help us, uh, <laughs> help us calibrate, I guess, and... Uh, and improve and then also help others find the show so uh that's the moral of the story uh so we need to travel more i guess i'm not <laughs> i'm not gonna travel more i'm i go to canada for my son to play hockey i stay in the u.s and the furthest i go on a plane is to hawaii <laughs> and i am totally fine with that i know michelle go travel more it's in picture books it's fine Jason is missing out on such a, such a amazingly phrase. wonderful world. I mean, I always say, like, God's green earth. You got to go see it. So, like I mentioned, we have a guest in today. Um, he is the owner and principal of his own full-service architectural firm here in Irvine, California. Holds a Bachelor of Architecture degree from Cal Poly Pomona. With international study at the University of Athens, Greece, his primary license is in California, but he holds licenses in numerous other states and also holds uh, NCARB national license for licensing recognition in all other states. Besides architecture, his passion is travel, and he has visited 26 countries and has lived abroad twice. And he is my first boss out of school. Oh, wow. Oh, there you <laughs> go. That's a fun fact. He didn't, didn't inform us that. of that no, before. I didn't say that. David Olson. <laughs> Dave, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Happy to be here. Uh, yeah, so this is my first boss out of school. Uh, pleasure working there. We hit a, a rough patch of <laughs> bad timing uh, with the economy uh, tanking, right? Yeah, the sure, Great yeah. Recession. That yeah. Was, yeah, it was bad timing. Yeah. <laughs> what firm was that? 
Uh, so it's David Olson. Oh, Architects. okay. That's so that was your first job yeah. out of college. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Dave, thanks for for being here. Thank you for having me and not being offended about the Great Recession. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, besides your bio, any other things you would want to leave in uh, leave a listener with? Or I don't want to sit here on a podcast and see a bunch of us. So basically. Uh, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, <laughs> we, we specialize primarily in high-end luxury custom residences, although we have our fair share of commercial work as well. Uh, we've been doing custom homes throughout the country, but primarily in Southern California for uh, 20-some years now. Yeah. We've been fortunate to land in the luxury market and really cater to the people that have second and third homes along the coast or in the desert has been a primary focus for us, the Palm Springs area. I wanted to start with, Dave, how would you um, phrase to someone what you do as an architect? Uh, if there was a, you know, somebody that wanted to, that had interest in building a home and they're not quite sure, you know, where to start and if they've heard start with an architect but they're a little bit unclear what that means, what an architect does. How would you describe that? Yeah, that, that's actually fairly common. Uh, a lot of our clients have built other homes before, so they've been through the process, but many haven't, and it's the first time they've done it, and they're really unfamiliar with the entire process. Yeah. So uh, I, I try to sit down and kind of walk them through the process so they know what to expect for the you know the ensuing two years really um from you know first meeting and establishing a program to you know them spending the night in their new home yeah i try to i try to kind of give them an overview of what to expect Uh, so from an architecture standpoint we just kind of walk through uh, the the phases of the architectural process Mm -hmm. and what to expect and sometimes i'll show them packages from previous projects they get a handle on it Mm -hmm. So that would be your your typical uh, schematic design phase, design development phase, and construction document phase. And uh, then we go through the city process and then the construction administration for the actual uh, construction of the project. Yeah. So And I'll break that down for them so they know what to expect within each one of those phases. Mm -hmm. Uh, They they like to know not only because they don't understand and they want to get a handle on the big picture, but frequently just so they can understand... uh, their their cash flow in terms yeah. of how it relates to professional services and you know what that's going to look like for them as well do people uh generally come to you with a budget in mind or do you kind of help them get their head around what that would look like Tip- typically they will uh come to me with a budget in mind uh, they frequently uh, have done a fair amount of research or and talked to a lot of people prior to uh, actually sitting down with me and so like I said some of them have been through this before and mm-hmm. they just kind of want to be more in tune with what the budget uh, for construction I'm assuming that's what you're talking about would be like in the current market in the current location mm-hmm. so we go through that as well but it's it's really kind of um, at that point in the game just kind of a, a big picture view yeah you know I need to understand if they're looking at uh, you know, $400 a foot or $800 a foot where their budget is, because that helps me as an architect establish 
honestly what, what the, yeah. the fee structure needs to be yeah. you know if if someone wants to spend eight or nine hundred dollars a foot then we get to have a lot more fun so to speak with the architecture maybe there's you know more aggressive cantilevers and mm-hmm. things that we wouldn't do if it was a budget budget conscious project uh, you know architecture is a service industry so that just takes time mm-hmm. so it just help, helps us understand our scope to establish a fee yeah uh, yeah, I was going to ask when you're when you're first meeting with clients, you know, whether it be first time um, custom home builder buyer type deals or second or third, you're saying you're going to a library and kind of showing them, you know, here's some stuff we've done before. How many mm-hmm. people really have a good concept? Because I mean, when you look at it from um, you know general knowledge, most people lack the the ability to have that vision of what they want to see go into the ground anyway. Yeah, uh, honestly, a lot of our clients are pretty sophisticated. You know, when you start dealing with, I guess the society term is the one percenters, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, they've been to the rodeo, Mm -hmm. um, but some of them haven't, and they they just kind of need to be educated through the process. There's a lot of influences uh, social media-wise as well between Hows and Instagram, and I've I've talked to a number of designers and architects that are in the custom home space that um, get frustrated because as they're going through that process, that that client is seeing something new mm-hmm. on Instagram or seeing some new concept on house that they didn't see before. And then they're coming back and saying, hey, well, let's implement this instead. And and so there's a lot of, you know, changes and change of direction. Yeah, um, that's that's really actually not new to the industry. It's just that the the source of it is new. Instead of uh, magazines. Yeah. <laughs> instead of magazines. You know, yeah. uh, frequently prior to those kinds of sources, people would come back to me with just, you know, a manila folder full of stacks of cut sheets they'd torn out of magazines. And, and it was actually really helpful and continues to be helpful. Uh, it's just more actually convenient when it's on house or Instagram because it's, it's something that we can um, store and access easier than just reams of magazine cuts. <laughs> but yeah, that was that was pretty common. You thought you were done with design, and someone would mm-hmm. go on a trip, and on the plane, they're thumbing through magazines, and they come back yeah. with things. And it's it's part of the process, and it, it's okay. Yeah, you know. As far as that budget question and and sort of the knowledge of the uh, homeowner, I wanted to kind of have a discussion amongst all of us um, from the different perspectives. Um, I'm in this architectural group where they have a lot of conversations about different things. And uh, somebody pointed uh, or uh, pasted in um, an email that they received from a, from a builder. So it says, hey, whoever, X, would you like to save thousands on your new home? Here's a valuable design tip. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but before you look for an architect to design your home, choose your builder. Why? Well, did you know 80% of architectural plans never come to fruition? You see, an architect focuses on what a home will look like, the design. The problem is they rarely factor in the costs, so what you end up with is a design that can quickly become very expensive to build. Think about it. Architects are trained to be visionaries. They live to create the perfect house. That's what you pay them for, but they are not always focused on the practicalities of building, how much extra time and money certain design elements may take, and the reality is they get paid for the design they can create whether you end up using it or not. 
There is a way to fuse vision with the practicalities of building. With a few small modifications, you can often achieve the same design result for a lot less money. When your builder and architect work together, you get the best of both worlds, a design that is beautiful and functional, and a design that is affordable to build. So it's the best so it's best to choose a builder first, then find an architect uh, and get them to work together. Um, so I wanted to get everyone's kind of thoughts on that. And this kind of goes back to the conversation that we were having earlier, Jason, where you talked about sort of how uh, relationships can, mm-hmm. you know, in this space of custom homes particularly can be sort of butting heads. Um, does anyone want to jump on this first? It's actually a question I've, I was going to ask, uh, at, at some point in this episode, yeah. which is what is your relationship with general contractors? Is there kind of a go-to general contractor that you really prefer because you have a synergy or does it really rest a hundred percent in the client's hands on who they're going to choose? It, uh, most of the time it's a direct relationship we already have with the general contractor and it would depend on the region. Um, we, we work with new contractors regularly, but you do tend to have a pool of guys that you've worked with in a region that you over time have developed a relationship with and you trust and you feel comfortable referring to new clients and vice versa. You know, in in terms of that email, I, I, I would, (laughs) <laughs> I I want to disagree with most of it, but yeah. some of it is accurate. The The part that I disagree with is this philosophy that, at least not for me, I can't speak for others, but we're not cape and beret kind of guys that just come in and do what we want and force a design on someone. We will never get more work after that project <laughs> yeah. if that was the case. Yeah. People, I, I think in, in all the years I've been doing this, which is quite a few, I've only had a few projects where there, we didn't have the B word, yeah. you know, there, there's always a budget and people come to you with something in mind and contractors definitely are the ones that can help achieve that goal. But architects need to, you, you have to have a sense for what the budget is. It's going to, similar to what I was saying earlier, if the budget is pretty high, I know I can do some crazy stuff. Yeah. If it's if it's a tight budget, then I need to do something very creative within the budget that's given to me. Yeah, and so that's a responsibility that I have when we sit down to do design work. You know, we want to we want to accomplish both. Yeah, it's not uncommon for a client to come to us with a builder already in tow, but it's uh, lots of times they look to us for referrals and. Lots of times the builders are the ones that refer us. Mm-hmm. I think like in my opinion, you know, having gone through it really on commercial side and then having seen it on the residential side too, I think the biggest thing is it's not necessarily like the chicken or the egg, right? Yeah. It's the relationship between the two Yeah. because, and, and I think that's the biggest piece because what happens is, is you get further and further along into a, into a, a project and the B word comes up, right? <laughs> and there needs to be a change or something that wasn't seen. You get a lot of the pointing back and forth. Well, it wasn't in the prints or, well, they should have known this or whatever it is. If that relationship is there between the architect and the builder, you have far less of that and they'll come together and they'll create a solution for it. It's usually when people go out and they hunt and they get something drawn 
and then say, okay, now we go get a price for it. And mm-hmm. it's like, that doesn't work. Well, now this one does from this guy. Okay, this one's better, right? Mm-hmm. It's the lowest one usually is what people end up doing. You're going to cause yourself a bunch of problems to begin with. You know what I mean? But I think if you have that relationship between the two where they're used to working with each other and they're used to dealing with each other and they kind of know it's like it's like on a basketball team. I know this guy's going to be backdoor. I know this guy's going to be at the top. You know, whatever it is, we kind of speak the same language. Works out far better. Yeah. But I don't think it's a chicken or the egg thing. Mm. Um, and I would disagree with what he's saying where it's like get the builder first because – Builder's not an architect. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like, he's going to tell you, you need to do it like this. Well, he's right. It may be far more efficient, but also may look like hell. And if you're going to spend a bunch of money to do a custom home, mm-hmm. like you got to blend the two. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. the, the philosophy of that statement that the architect's getting paid, whether the project is built or not. And, and so he doesn't care what the budget comes in at to yeah. me. I mean, that's just kind of, that's kind of absurd. I mean, if I did that, I, I, I wouldn't have more work following it. Yeah. It just, that, I don't know who wrote that, but I just don't necessarily agree with it. It's all right. I called somebody an idiot before, too. Are you the one that wrote it? (laughs) No, I definitely am not the one that wrote it, but yeah. And certainly it's not 80%. Uh, Definitely, you know, some of our, we just had two incredible custom homes go in the drawer, you know, and and that's that's painful for me, you know. The ones that you love tend to be the ones that (laughs) don't, don't get built, but. What causes that? Most of it. Most of it does get built. Yeah, so in those situations, was it. Uh, loss of income or uh, well um those were two specifically um different situations uh one, one was um a client from out of state and it was a second home and uh for some reason uh, what was being proposed they, they felt that the they were getting a little bit too much pushback from the homeowners association mm-hmm. and they felt like they weren't welcome in the community um I, I felt like it was, they hadn't been through the process before. And for me, it was just kind of a standard procedure. Course, we, just, yeah. we just needed to go through the process and everything would have been fine. Um, and then the other one um, was a, a large compound, actually. And we were adding two additional um, structures to the compound. And um, she was just too busy with her personal life mm-hmm. and decided to just shelve it for now. We were th- we were through construction documents on one oh, and wow. partially through design on the other. And um, she just decided her life was too busy right now to take on two additional projects. So she shelved it. So it happens for a variety of reasons. It's uh, pretty, we just really don't know. It's pretty common, uh, just like a change of uh, life changes often gets in the way, right? I know we had one while I was there where um, there was a divorce or something and and the project ended up kind of falling falling through just because yeah, I think you know I think that was one on the on the on the coast I was on the beach if, if I recall and that's actually lifestyle stuff is kind of rare to mm-hmm. be honest with you that doesn't happen that often it's just other things each situation is different Mm -hmm. for a project to go in the drawer Mm -hmm. um sometimes uh it's it's the economy you know if 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 we're not dealing with someone who has significant wealth that can weather the economy and it's someone who you know is, is is a little more concerned about the repercussions of the economy and is now the right time to build they they might get a little skittish as a result of that Mm but the 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 higher end people um tend to just forge on forward they're they're set yeah they're they're not going to let that affect them yeah some of them look at it as an opportunity actually yeah 
so we were going to talk uh, a sort of feature one of your projects um so if you can just give us like a, a little snapshot of what that project was and um what their intent was and sort of your process into engaging into that, that first project yeah actually that would that was a while ago but that would be a, um, an interesting one to talk about um he was the president of a, a Fortune 100 company, and um, they wanted to build their dream home. Yeah. And they, they uh, had not been through the process before, and they had purchased um, uh, a home on the bluff above Dana Point Harbor, uh, a really incredible site. Um, a lot of the homes there looked directly out to the harbor and out to the ocean. This one had an angle to it, so it also had views down the coastline, and it was really a lot and a half. So it was, it was wider nice. than anything else on the street, and it had on it uh, a home that was probably one of the first ones built. Mm. It was a cool little house, actually, but it didn't take advantage of the view and certainly didn't... Um, respond to what the land value was now in terms of how it took advantage of the view so um uh, they they hired us and it was kind of an interesting thing we met out on the site and he uh, um, walked me up the street to a home about five or six doors down and said, this is kind of what i'm thinking about yeah and uh no offense to whoever designed that but it was just <laughs> It was just really a, a terrible early 80s Mediterranean, and he and I joke about this now even, the kind of early 80s Mediterranean kind of style home that was very popular then, basically a large tract house. Yeah. Uh, and and I said, you know, I'm, <laughs> I said, I'm sorry, your site is just absolutely stunning, and it deserves more than this. Yeah. Let me just do something for you that stretches the envelope and let me show it to you and then and then you decide which path you want to take and yeah. so he he let me do that mm-hmm. and uh fortunately loved what what i did mm-hmm. and um we ran with it from there and right. it ended up being a, a soft contemporary home with some gorgeous materials with santa barbara sandstone and coppers and mahoganies and it really took advantage of the views out and down the coastline mm-hmm. and um, ended up being a very, very successful project in a home they, they absolutely loved living in. What size was the home? What, what that was a while ago. So, uh, roughly. I mean, uh, roughly, I think it was about 6,500 square feet. And like build that. time on it, do you recall? It was a complicated build because it was on a on a on the bluff. cliff. It was yeah. on a bluff, so there was a lot of foundation caissons work. Caissons and all that kind of stuff. Tons yeah. of caissons. It was a, it was a complicated build. Uh, you know, h- higher on the on the cost per square foot budget finishes and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it I, I can't recall. It's been a while, but it was it was a difficult build. It was difficult to get it approved. We had some opposition from the neighbor <laughs> who wanted to maintain his. View. His view ac- across <laughs> our backyard, which he wasn't uh, legally entitled to, but he, he tried to fight the project, saying that we were destabilizing the bluff. So it went all the way to city council, actually. So it was it was a little bit of a, a struggle to uh, get the approval on that to begin with. And that's a good example where we talked earlier about some projects go in the drawer. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just had a project go on in the drawer on something that was kind of routine. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but that particular client was, he's like, no, I like a challenge, bring it, you know? <laughs> That's cool. So, so, uh, so we just move forward. You know, we see that on occasion where, um, you know, it's a man in his castle and the people around their home don't want something to change and they will fight it. And yeah. your client has to kind of stand up for their own rights to develop their own private property as well. So they realize they're probably going to piss off their neighbors and in advance. Yeah, uh, it, for sure. On some of them, yeah, we've had yeah. some pretty contentious things where people just don't want things built. Yep. But that's not that common. A, a lot of our work in the desert, for instance, it's, mm-hmm. it's in developed country club communities with yep. established CCNRs. Yep. And as long as you stay within parameters, you're okay. But we've had clients want to push the envelope within those as well. When you're along the coast, it's different. And then it depends on which city you're in, too. You know, for how, sure. How is that? Uh, how does that change your approach or conversations that you have when you hit these complex parts of a project where it's either you're dealing with the city or um, or the site has some complexity to it? Um, how do you approach those conversations with your client and sort of getting them to not freak out? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. again, it's situational, you know. Because our clientele are typically very busy people, um, they're either they own businesses or they're high level executives in the in the high end luxury custom home market. Yeah. Um, or we're, we're doing some work now for people that are in the sports world. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very busy people, and they travel a good nine to ten months out of the year, literally. So we don't necessarily, in, in, in fact, intentionally don't engage them in all the minutia that mm-hmm. goes along with a project because they're just too busy. They hire us to take care of problems for them and solve them without them even being aware. Mm-hmm. If it gets to the point where it's a contentious situation like that, then yeah, they, they need to be involved and along for the ride. Um they need to assist in the process because at that point there's neighbor situations and, you know, we're, we're doing architecture, but at the end of the day, they're living in this home and yeah. you, you kind of want them to get along with their neighbors. And so you do yeah. what you can to accomplish that. But at some point <clears throat> that's just sometimes just not possible. Some people are just yeah unreasonable. And I've, I've seen that regularly. We had, we had one about a year or two ago and, um, it's a, uh, it's a neighborhood that just has a ton of lawsuits with neighbors suing neighbors. And the, oh the, sounds so, very neighborly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's really uh, pleasant community. I, I honestly um, would not want to work in there again. And in fact, another architect was about to do a project there, and I really gave him a red flag. Which city? It's a Newport Beach, and everybody in Newport knows which one it is. But, <laughs> but um, I don't think it's my neighborhood. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I have a guess. So uh, the lady next door, we, we, we did on occasion what we will do to try to promote um, um, community is, is we'll have kind of a, a wine and cheese thing on a Sunday afternoon and invite the adjacent neighbors over to come over and look at the plans and discuss the project and ask questions and, and you know, try, try to... Um, you know, get everybody on the same page instead of just surprise everybody. And, and some buy-in. Yeah, yeah in, in some situations we'll do that. And some people are just incre- incredibly unreasonable, and you, you can only try. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, I mean, you're I, dealing, especially in your area, like in your 
niche of the market, you're dealing with a lot of egos too. I mean, that's the other thing, right? When you get up in there, especially in some of those newer communities where you're developing and stuff and you get a little pushback because I don't want them to have a bigger, better one than me. I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff that goes into it, right? Uh, yeah, it's I not mean, all I, the time, but some parts of it. And I mean, I, I would say ego is pro- it sounds like a negative term, but I don't think that you're incorrect in this situation. I think that these are all very successful people mm-hmm. and and uh, many, many of them are used to getting what they want, yep. and they, but they butt heads with other people that yep. are getting used to what they want as well. Yep. Um, but for the most part, in all the years I've been doing this, I mean, we've just had some really incredible people, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, just incredible clients, good people to know. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes there's this perception that when you get to that level that, you know, uh, that's, that, a, that's the two percent that creates a bad image for everybody. Yeah. And and honestly, not that we haven't had a couple of people um, over 20 some years of doing this, but by far. By far, our list of clientele have just really been incredible people to, to work awesome. with and to be around. And I, I mean that sincerely. They're, they're, they've been good people. Yeah. What's the uh, what's sort of the most complex problem um, or issue that you end up trying to deal with? You know, pro- probably. Uh, I guess I would say trying to do something unique each time Mm. you know i mean people are coming to you and they want a jewel you know they want something that's never been done before and and uh that's probably the hardest part is on the front end is really wrapping your mind around as architects we're used to understanding the context of a site Mm -hmm. right and what the design parameters are whether from the city or the association and what the program is and and um you know what the view line is and what prevailing winds are and what the sun orientation Mm -hmm. is i mean that's all part of what all architects do for ground up stuff um that that's a given Uh, when you get into this uh high-end luxury thing but that's also the fun part too, yeah. right? Um, is really dreaming up something that you haven't done before and they haven't done before or seen before. Yeah. You know, do you, um, can, I don't know if you have an agreement with your clients that you will never replicate that design ever again, sort of deal, or do you have some ability to reuse a plan that you've designed? Or do you not want to do that? Well, I definitely don't want to, but the programs are so specific for a client mm. um, that that just would, really wouldn't be the case. Uh, the only time I can think of that is when we've done um, some spec homes in the desert, which were really high-end semi-custom. Mm-hmm. And we would take, with one specific developer out there, we would take that design and relocated to another one of his communities and and we would typically in that case really change what what it looked like from the street Mm -hmm. and then maybe modify the plan a little bit to be site appropriate but that's really rare we haven't done that in years these are all one of a kind yeah you know specialty things everybody's got you know they tend to have there there are some things in programs that are very typical Mm mm-hmm um, from program to program to program. And then there, there are always some things that are very unique to how a client is going to use the house, how they entertain, you know, in the, in the second home and third home category, they frequently are, you know, in their fifties or sixties and their kids, um, are, are grown and gone. 
not always, but you know, some of our clients are younger and they have young kids, but that's all part of the, the great dialogue at the beginning to understand what the program is. Yeah. You know, my job is to be a good listener. So, you know, what I present to them with that first schematic design is pretty darn close to where they would like to be. Yeah. If not, I, I, I didn't listen very well on the front <laughs> end and, and that's, that's not where I want to be as a businessman either. I, <laughs> yeah, I don't right. want to redesign things nine times, right. yeah. you know. I'm, I'm curious if I can ask a question, yeah. you know, in, in the portfolio, not necessarily, but what's one fee, if you were to pick, pick one feature you did for a house, like one element that you think was just like the coolest thing you got to put together, what would that element be? Not necessarily a house or a project, but like, like crazy some grand foyer, some, some crazy outdoor opening, you know, indoor outdoor thing or some well, we've done 50 some, car garage or, you know what I mean? Like what? Yeah, we've, we've done some, some crazy things over the years and mm-hmm. that, that, and then you think you've seen it all, and then you'll yeah. see something new. Yeah. Yeah. For some reason, what stuck in my mind right there was uh, I opened my practice in 91, so we've been doing this a while. And way back at the beginning, we did um, bifold um, multi, I mean, I'm sorry, multi slide pocketing glass sliders. And at the time, no one was doing them and it was really a unique thing mm. that we came up with not that they actually that was the first project i think i'd ever seen it and we had taken what were um um sliders that were used in interior shopping malls uh, glass sliders that were used in an interior condition and modified them for an exterior use to have mm. this uh you know, pocketing sliding glass door system Vanishing that is just yeah. everywhere now. Yeah. So that's I, that popped into my mind first. How, yeah. how times have changed, cool. where now you can just see that in in production. production. Yep. You For know, sure. it's an it's an incredible feature, and it's just kind of interesting how it's evolved over those years. Um, home theaters, you know, that that's an interesting thing as well because they've kind of come and gone and come again that's a some people want them and some people don't yeah um we some of the ones that i think are most successful when we do home theaters are the ones that have uh, um, a relationship to an adjacent great room space or a family room space Mm -hmm. rather than the ones that are kind of down in a basement or down a hallway not that we haven't done those as well kind of the destination home theater thing yeah uh, wine rooms are really big now yeah um so we see a lot of that it just it depends in the, in the desert those people are out there um to be social for the most part and um in newport they're more or, or anything along the coast here yeah they're they're more primary home use and it's um they do entertain don't get me wrong but i, th- I think the homes in the desert are much more geared towards a social lifestyle yeah, for sure. One of the crazy things I heard from a, a teacher, a project that he worked on, he, I think it was like out in Vegas or something. And he said that all bets are off. As yeah. soon as you mentioned Vegas, all bets are so off. So he said that yeah. he had the glass uh, for the house. I can't recall what type of glass it was, but the glass, when you looked at it, you would see what you thought was in front of you, but it skewed the view. So like you're not directly in front of me in front of me although you appear like you're in front of me you're actually like a foot to the left of what my vision uh hmm. shows and we took we were like trying to figure out what 
what was the Why? reasoning for What's wanting the to do this? So our <laughs> thought was that in general. our thought was that he was afraid of assassinations or some attempts, and he didn't want his actual like if someone's looking in yeah. and wanted to take a shot at him, Random. they would miss. Yeah. Okay. So as I was saying, I think I've seen everything, but that I haven't seen. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's always something new. Right. It's always, it's always something, something new. That I haven't had that. Yeah. Definitely had people worry yeah, about and that. Their sounds, safety, but that sounds that. right in Vegas too. Yeah. By the way. It's just like it's Guido or something. Yeah. <laughs> Vegas is a different animal for custom homes. Would you say that custom architects have a style or gravitate toward a style? Like, is there a client that? Would you ever turn away work because a client is asking you to custom design sort of a, a, a product that maybe just isn't your uh, absolutely. forefront? Yeah, because yeah, yeah. I've seen. I mean, I live in Newport, and so see often all of the remodels and teardowns and redevelopment of of homes. There's one directly across the street from me that's. I was excited because the scaffolding went down yesterday. <laughs> I pulled up and I was like, "Wow!" <laughs> so they finally got the scaffolding down, but. Um, but it seems like there are architects, and I could rattle off a couple that just have like a very distinct style, and even though they are custom, but they sort of do the same thing over and over. Yeah, uh, for sure. I think there's a vocabulary that is just innate. You know, there's kind of your look, and people come to you for that. I, I think you know there's some variation within that. But for the most part, yeah, there's just kind of something that's innate. You know, I happen to like very uh, light and bright and comfortable and open plans, you know, uh, and more traditional homes that are uh, broken up into interior rooms and hallways and galleries. There are guys that do that, and that's more their thing. Uh, we, we've done our, our share of some of that, like in the Shady Canyon area. Um, but people do have a vocabulary and that's why clients select them. Yeah. Stylistically, you're not restricted, um, though, cause you, you've kind of ranged from contemporary to, uh, traditional stuff to, um, yeah, well, it would depend. I mean, there, there are a couple of styles and quote unquote, the traditional vernacular that yeah. I, I enjoy doing. Most of our work tends to be contemporary. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, I, I like Spanish colonial or Spanish revival because I think it's appropriate. You know, the Santa Barbara style, I think mm -hmm. it's appropriate to to our climate around here. Yeah. You know, if, if someone... Shady Canyon, especially, stuff like that, right? Yeah, if, yeah. Someone, if someone wanted me to do, you know, a Georgian or something <laughs> like that, I mean, and I have told people I'm, I'm not your guy. Yeah. You know, I mean, the business side of you wants to take it, but it's not the right it's not the right fit and yeah. you just accept that yeah talk about the relationship between an interior designer um so furniture spacing and where mm -hmm. certain cabinet selections and things of, of that nature are coming into play and then i'm also curious about the landscape architecture are you doing any landscape or is it do you have so, a go-to guy that you're constantly partnering with on that front uh, so I'll, I'll start with the latter part of that question about landscape architecture. When, when, when I do schematic design, I also do a first pass on the site. I, I want my clients to understand the whole project. So I will design the site as well and pool and spa and hardscape and conceptual landscape. 
but it's really conceptual in nature just to show them my overall vision of how the whole project would be developed. Mm -hmm. But I really want them at some point to bring in a landscape architect. And in my experience, the best projects are when you have a team of professionals and everybody's really good at what they do. Right in their wheelhouse. Yeah. 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 So I, 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 uh, I enjoy doing that. And um, like I said, it helps them understand the big picture. But then a landscape architect, I hope, comes in and um, really takes, it, takes it, it to a yeah. whole nother level. Mm-hmm. And I've had situations where, where they just take my design and refine it and execute it. And then um, I've had it where they um, save portions of it and toss it. Because some of it's a logical thought process about how where things need to be. And then somewhere they just start over and do their own thing. And I'm, I'm fine with that, too especially when it's better than what I did. You know, it's not what I do for a living. I'm just trying to show them an overall vision. And in terms of interior design, um, that's an interesting field. There, there's, there, there's, no, go ahead and say it. Go ahead and say it. Because <laughs> well, no, I, agree, I agree with you. There's a, there's a wide range of interior design firms out there. And some of them... <laughs> some of them are people who have been told that their home looks really great and they should go do it for a living. (laughs) And others are, you know, full service, five to 10 person firms, and they're going to do a full package. And it's just, it's a, it's a wide, that industry is a very wide range. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I have to kind of establish on every project, you know, um, what that scope is going to be because it impacts me. Like I love to do lighting design and switching design. And um, on most projects, we will do that. If we're on a project with a higher end, higher level interior design firm, they're going to want to do that. Mm -hmm. If it's, if it's, if it's a one person shop, they won't know how to do it frequently, but they're good at picking out textures and yeah. So when does that interior designer get involved? I mean, if it is a full service, you know, more legitimate design firm, I mean, at at what point is your client saying you guys need to sit down together and communicate and talk and plan this out together? So in in general, um, I, I like to bring them in when we're pretty far through schematic design. Um, maybe even into design development. I don't like them to be brought in too soon sometimes mm-hmm. because the focus becomes yep. different than what I want. We might, I, we might be early in schematics and we're looking at big picture stuff, you know, like, hey, is the master bedroom on the right side of the house for you? You know, mm-hmm. big picture stuff. And if you bring in an interior designer early, they're asking questions about where their drapery pockets are going to go. And it's just too early for that. Some projects we've been brought in by the interior designer. So they're involved in in conversations about the architecture and the, the compound that I was talking about earlier. I was brought in by an interior designer out of New York, actually, and he was heavily involved in that process. And it was a very synergistic kind of team approach to mm-hmm. it, you know? But so, I, I think I think your, your comment, though, because there's, the amount we see, I mean, we'll work on homes from, you know, obviously really affordable. I'm throwing up air quotes. <laughs> um, all the way up to six, seven, eight, nine million dollar semi custom production homes. And the idea of interior designer is almost like a very layman tossed around term these days. 
everybody thinks they know how to do interior design and when you get into the upper level stuff it is it is a profession by far to really understand how all of it works but you get a few people these days that think they can put together colors and stuff like that and they become super opinionated and it's very difficult Mm -hmm. like to deal with them because they don't have true product in a lot of them that are out there claiming that don't have true product design and understanding and those types of things and it it can become conflictual like very fast very very fast Mm -hmm. and and truly like i think from an architecture side or builder side you know we're talking about you don't you know not overly opinionated they're highly opinionated like highly opinionated it's it's fun yeah it can be fun yeah Yeah, we'll we'll have to get uh an interior designer in here as well to to i know a few that i love working with so we could bring them in but i'm sure you know he has (laughs) some that he enjoys working with but it's there's it's I've worked with many, many, many over the years. And so when a client, lots of times the client will already know who their designer is. Mm-hmm. Um, but lots of times they ask me for referrals and, and you have to really kind of feather out who the right fit is. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. a variety of aspects to that. I mean, personality, budget, aesthetic, uh, all, they have a style all of too. that. And they have a they style have too. They have a style. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. they do. Yeah. I guess I have another question Um, (laughs) on the coordination between consultants. So in the custom world, is the architect the one that is hiring the soils engineer? You know, do you do MEPS? Do you mechanical, electrical, plumbing Uh, or structural? Or do you have someone else that's doing those? We don't do it in house. So um, that is starting to become more and more of our package. It used to be in, in the custom residential world. You know, you had you had, you had your typicals. You had your architect, and you had your structural engineer, and you had your civil engineer, and your soils engineer, and your Title Twenty Four consultant, and those kinds of things. And mechanical, electrical, and plumbing were done primarily as design build in the field. Oh, and that was very very common, and still is on yeah, on many many projects. Yeah. But in the desert, some of the cities started to require mechanical, electrical, and plumbing um, documentation on on those homes. And typically what we do on those is we still use the design-build contractor, but they have people that do it in-house. Hmm. Okay. And then their, their fee gets rolled into the subcontract if they, get the, if they get the job or not. And if not, then they get compensated. But it's not like a commercial project where you have full mechanical, electrical, and plumbing. It's, it's, it's rare. We have done them. I, I, we had you know, a large home that had a, had a cooling tower. You know, I mean, we needed a legitimate mechanical engineer on that. So typically it's design build. And you don't, you don't carry any of those, um, consultants under your contract though. Sometimes. Oh, you really? Yeah. Some, sometimes, um, for, for some of them, for some of our clients, they just want me to be a one-stop shop. You know, they're, they're busy, busy people. And they said, we don't care. And, and honestly, from a business standpoint, I explained to them, okay, if you run it through me, there's a markup. I have to cover my time and my liability. And they're like, I I don't care. Yeah. I just, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with it. You know? Um, so for the, the smaller, what I'm dealing with, uh, like additions and stuff, I don't carry uh, consultants under my contract because of that added mm-hmm. liability is just going to run well, I, I will, I will never, budget. I'll never have a soils engineer under my umbrella. Even if a client requests it, I'll be under me. That, that oh, was thanks. one trade. It's like, yeah. you have to sign that directly. Hmm. 
Um, but I mean, we carry fully an ode. Yeah. I mean, it's just part of the process, you know, and custom residential is a relationship thing. You know, it's, it's just not something that gets contentious typically, Mm -hmm. you know, that happens more in the commercial world where it's a a business. Contentious with the client or. Yeah. I mean, litigious, you know, knock on wood, never, (laughs) never been there, but you know, you see it in the commercial world. It's, it's a relationship that that is different than than the business world. Well, it's funny. Like I know someone that's built probably four custom homes and like big custom homes, one of them being 12, 14,000 feet, you know, that kind of deal. And it's been the same builder that's done every single home for him, aside from one in the desert. And the guy's at their weddings, you know, get his kid, phone number. Yeah. <laughs> kids weddings. You know what I mean? Like part of fan, like it's just, it is a relationship that they've had together for so many years because you're, you, yeah. you literally end up like, meeting them after, you know, after work and, yep. you know, their dinner, you're sitting down having dinner with them, you know, all these other kind of things that go along with it. And I could see that being exactly the case, you know, in most situations. Yeah. And, uh, and a commercial project's entirely different. Entirely different. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have one signature feature you like to sneak into things? Kind of like a, you know what I mean? Like this is a, this is a signature of what we do. Cause a lot of builders have that, not necessarily all the custom builders, but that's an interesting question. Like a signature characteristic or, you know, I, toll hat like Toll Brothers, and I know it's production, but it's always like the double staircase. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like they have a lot of homes that have a double staircase. You know, something something to that effect. I I guess, I guess what pops into my mind is, is as a designer, I, I I like to have datum points in the architecture. You know, a, a linking feature. So I have a lot of I do a lot of datum walls. You know, a strong stone-clad wall that other fragile elements might link to, and it's kind of an organizing element, and it and it might direct a view, and it might, you know, like I said, anchor other elements, and it might separate spaces, and and I might have a few of those, and and I, and I tend to lean towards that as a design feature. It's just kind of natural for me. Yeah. And that's what pops into my mind, I yeah, guess. That makes, I mean, it makes sense, you know, that's yeah. cool. What would you recommend that a home buyer do when, what's the one thing that you would recommend they do when considering a custom home to consider or to think about when they're approaching that? Uh, patience i guess it, it's a long process yeah. you know and for for many people it's just an easier thing to just go buy something and and live in it and if that's right for them that's great um we're in a we're in a niche where people want something in, in a very specific community or they want something very specific for their lifestyle mm-hmm. and so uh you know, I, 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 they just need to understand what they're what they're getting into and how long the process is, and we try to walk them through that as best as we can. Yeah, uh, and it's really just a ballpark on what it can truly be. Yeah, you know, if if neighbors get contentious and it delays the project, you know, I mean, it's it's, it's a it's it's a fluid process. Yeah. you know, and that's probably the other thing I would say is in addition to patience, just understand that it's a fluid process and you know things change in the time that you're doing the project i I got i got a question to go along with that so when you're working with um your client and you're talking budget you're talking time frame you know i have a percentage i like to add to both of those when i'm telling people when they're going through the process do you tell them hey 
here's what we're looking at, but it's a good idea to have X percent on top of the budget or what is that percent that you build into the budget budget wise yeah and then also time you know build build schedule wise i just give them a general time frame of of you know what a typical project like that will take just based on doing this for so many years mm-hmm. i have i have a decent sense mm-hmm. but i i you know like for instance the architectural side of it uh, I, I know what a normal project would take, but mm-hmm. many times I have zero control over that. Mm-hmm. When you know we have one in Newport right now, where you know uh, we're in the city and they got the bids back and they're rethinking everything. Hmm. So there was one project while I was there. It it overlooked a park or was just behind a park in the residence from Mm -hmm. behind it complained about blocking its view so he ended up having to build down and yeah complain would be an understatement yeah (laughs) how long did that one take from beginning to end from the see if anyone is listening to this and they want to do a custom home i'm afraid to say because then they're (laughs) going to run for the hills but that one from beginning to end took eight and a half years holy yeah crap because that was like lawsuits and yeah that's brutal the architectural that, style has changed in that same period. Of time. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but that's, that was just that's, a, a, that's an outlier. I mean, that is an outlier. Yeah. But uh, at the end of the day, that was just uh, on the cover of Lux magazine last year. So <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. was just a unique, very unique situation. Um, well, I mean, it's as public as can be. I'll just talk about it. It, it was in Newport Beach, and it was a private lot at the uh, near Begonia Park, okay. and the, it was a cliffside lot. And um, someone over the years had placed a park bench at the top of my client's lot. And so over time, um, oh, I think geez. the neighbors felt uh, over time felt that it was part of the park. And so my client then went to develop his property. And so all of the neighbors really fought that project to an ex- to an extreme that I I mean, there were. They had a website. They had banners. They had. They sat out in front of grocery stores with petitions. Every yard in the area had a like yard sign, signs, and they yeah. basically tried to, you know, tell my client, "You're not welcome here." And he just uh, he, he had a very valuable piece of dirt, and they essentially wanted him to donate it. And he said, "Well, if you, I, I'm, this is what I would have said: if you you want to buy, you want to buy it, and you donate <laughs> it, it would be great." Yeah. But. So we redesigned that thing three times to try to satisfy everybody and the city. And it was a four-story kind of going down the hillside. That's and it ultimately... And you had, you had our, or the, the homeowner had the right to design. You the, It was correct. still within... Yes. Yeah. Uh, no variance. Yeah, no variance. It was an R1 lot, the whole deal. But to be, you know, to sort of be a good neighbor... Ended up redesigning to try yeah, well, and get good it for as that guy because screw those possible, people, right? Like that is so not okay. Yeah, like, he God. basically persevered. What a and, nice person! And it uh, was uh, they're great people too, and I really felt bad for what they were going through. Yeah, but yeah, that one that was the first environmental impact report ever in the history of the city of Newport Beach for a single family residence. I mean, we went <laughs> that's that, insane. It went that far. We had to have you know botanists and um, Native American Indians during excavation. It was that's, this is really why I just start to hate people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's is just... that is that one on your website? Yeah, 
it is at the corner of Begonia Avenue and Pacific Drive, right where those two intersections meet or two streets meet. Yeah. You know, it was really a case of perseverance that went to planning commission and city council. And, you know, at the end of the day, the neighbors felt that a portion of the view from a public park was being blocked and that we should not develop. Mm -hmm. And he had purchased uh, his his wife um, had this lot that was an R1 lot that had in the general plan rights to be developed as a, as a single family home. And so yeah. that's what we did. And we redesigned it three times to try to get everybody happy. But again, at some point you can't get everybody happy. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, that was just a case of perseverance because uh, the city backed us. We were in the right. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people I've seen this, you know, hope that you'll just kind of give up and, <laughs> you know, go away and buy something somewhere else. Yeah. You know, so, but he was in too deep to do that. Yeah, for sure. That sucks. Yeah. That's unusual though, but it does happen. I think that happens more in like Laguna beach than it does in Newport (laughs) beach. Newport beach is definitely more of a property rights city. Yeah. Um, And so it was kind of unusual for that to happen in Newport. And then really quick, one recommendation for uh, the, people on the provider side of producing a uh, custom home, what would be your recommendation? You know, in the custom residential world, it's the, the people that work in it. It's, it's more of a passion. Mm-hmm. I, I think down to all of the trades, yeah. you know, the craftsmen that work on these projects, you know, they're, they're really good at what they do. So I think that would be the one thing is just keep the passion, you know, for, for, for that, you know, there some guys, it's just, it's, it's a true trade, yeah. you know, especially when you get into some of the millwork, the glass, yeah. the rail. I mean, we have a, yeah. we have a winding stair going up in a fairly contemporary home on Linda Isle right now. And I, I, I actually went to the site several times just to watch that thing being <laughs> built because it was just a work of yeah. art. Yeah. I mean, yeah. how they did it was really fascinating well it's interesting because we even talk about like in our industry and there's a lack of trades you know what i mean Mm -hmm. lack of tradesmen coming in and some of these guys like i you know i'll I'll be on a job site and you just sit in awe and when you watch anybody that's really good at what they do Mm -hmm. i mean it's amazing to see down to basic stuff even guys that do you know um plaster you know what i mean some of the plaster workers and stuff like that to get some of the walls to where they do i mean they're just so good at what they and there's not the same appreciation for it as there is for the guy doing millwork let's say or whatever but um when you get into these homes it really comes down to the quality of the trade i mean there's different things you can do to save dollars here and there and whatever as you go through it but getting the guy that really is a tradesman is huge i have have a healthy healthy respect for the guys that actually put it together yeah i mean it's i'm doing my own house now and you know the guy's just meticulously doing the tile work in the shower yeah. and then you know you look at it and you know you're kind of like yeah, i think i could do that and you're like there's just no way you know <laughs> i mean they're just you could if you spent that amount of time yeah if that, that was amount my of length doing yeah. it you know what i mean <laughs> like you could but it's so many years that go behind it and that's why i hate at times like diy <laughs> hgtv like because they just make it look so simple and it's yeah. like you're really pulling away from what a lot of these guys have been doing for so long so well yeah and you're not going to end up with the same result you know uh it's interesting it, it, it's interesting what you were saying though about the availability of trades because it's 
things have been so good for so long right mm-hmm. now knock on wood it's yeah. you know it's it's just it's difficult sometimes to get trades on job sites yeah. and that's one of the other reasons you know you have a relationship with a high-end custom home builder because yep. he has those relationships yep. with the sub trades with guys that he's been working yep. with for years yep and so they'll deliver for him mm-hmm. uh, and uh, other guys maybe don't have those relationships just for yet. sure for sure big that's difference interesting. all right dave uh last thing we have a segment uh where we ask, what was that like? What was it like being a custom home architect going through the recession? Well, that was, it wasn't fun for anybody. Yeah. You know, I think at the time our work fell off about 40% or so. And that was just, that was a struggle for me. It was maybe even more of a struggle because I was involved in several spec homes as well. Um, not just as an architect, but as an involvement in the piece, a piece of the pie in those. So I, I ate it on all of those. Oh, wow. So it was, it was just, uh, it was, a, it was a tough time, but you know, you just, you kind of you know plod through it you know there was still work out there and there were there were still people that were doing work during the recession it wasn't like it was you know 100 percent dead but with without a doubt there was a, a, a downturn uh, what i remember was what i what i call the the working millionaire um those those guys you know really uh closed up a shop in terms of doing that kind of work you know they they had reached this is my assessment at the time they'd reached a point where they they had made it and then that recession hit and then they you know lost a fair amount and they're like did i really make it and so they they weren't as aggressive to go out and do new things but the big money people they were still doing things Hmm. I i recall you know you trying to come up with different services that you could do as a business to sort of supplement the slowdown and mm-hmm. and sort of you know looking at different options and, and ways to yeah keep you know at the time none of that was successful though yeah. you know i mean when, when it dried up it kind of dried up across the board yeah. that was that was a really tough time yeah um especially for people in like the merchant builder world you know production housing was really hit hard you know, like I said, I, I, I had clients that um, made money in that period. Yeah. So they were still doing things. And it was it was enough to keep, the, you know, things running mm-hmm. until it turned. But uh, it was a tough time. And it's interesting, the the after effects of that. I, I see a lot of, uh, a, lot mo- a, a lot more, you know, one-man firms out there, two-man firms, three-man firms. That, that maybe started as a result of that recession yeah. that hung around. And there are some guys out there that are really doing some beautiful stuff right now. So I think it's it indirectly is a positive to the built community. Mm-hmm. And there's talk of we're coming up on another one soon. Has that experience changed how you get ready for the next? It's not going to be as bad, likely. But- yeah. You know, it's, I mean, people have talked about that off and on for several years now. Yeah. Um, 
as much as you try, you know, I, I went, I remember going through one when I was working for someone else before I started my business. And the lesson I tried to learn from that was don't have all your eggs in one basket. Mm-hmm. You know, I think 60% of that firm's work was, was with one specific client. So when oh, that wow. client dried up, yes. you know, we went from 25 people to nine, like in a heartbeat. Yeah. So I tried to, I tried to remember that lesson to, you know, to have a, a larger basket. Yeah. But for the most part, all you can do is, you know, if a quality project comes in and you want it, you take it. Yeah. You know, and if the recession hits, you deal with it. You hopefully have something set aside to weather it. There's just not a lot that we can do to control, you know, what's happening out there. Yeah. You try to stay lean. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Always. Thank you so much, Dave. You're uh, welcome. Parting your knowledge and experience, uh, really appreciate it. Glad you were able to make it in, um, get this get this recording done. That was fun. Yeah. It was fun. So thank you so much uh, again. As always, thank you guys, uh, Jason, Michelle. You're welcome. Absolutely. Thank you to our listeners. I'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks. huge thank you to Dave again for spending some time with us. If you want more information on him, you can check out his firm, David R. Olson Architects at olsonarchitect.com. That's O-L-S-O-N architect.com. Thank you again for spending some time with us. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate or like it and leave a review. It helps others find us. So it's all up to you. If you really love what we're doing, sharing us with your friends is even better. If you stumbled upon the show, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss another episode. And if you're still listening, next time on Spaces Podcast. They were state hospitals that came about in the 1900s and were original, had original, um, you know, they were called asylums at the time, but had original buildings from that time period on their campus still and some even still in operation and so you can just imagine even like construction technology and building technology has changed so much that a large span of safe glass is possible where you know smaller punched opening openings is really what populates these other buildings and so the ability to just get daylight into newer construction um, and help with you know the environment on the inside is, is something that's now possible. Dealing with confidentiality and thinking about sort of the random nature of the environments that you end up having to do therapy. Does that ever become an issue? Oh, absolutely. Um, I've seen school closets that they've makeshifted with egg carton crates just to like mitigate sound and it's visible. And um, that's like the best thing they could do to try to make sure that no one hears our conversation. And I would say uh, sometimes working in schools, you might be thrown again into a small space that was meant for like a little bit of, of private time for a student. And on one side, there's a loud classroom doing some activity. And so since you can hear them, you, you know, at some point they might be able to hear you. And on the other side is the library where they're supposed to be quiet, but they're usually being loud and they potentially might hear you as well. So with having a mobile phone, if you don't carry around the sound machine, you might just play some white noise and speak quietly, which isn't ideal for being able to connect with someone and hear someone and do good work.
Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.